All right, let's begin. I don't have um, scripture reading this uh, this class. I've been trying to start with scripture reading, but I forgot to pick one. But we've got a lot of ground to cover if we're going to keep going. We have uh, five classes after this one, so six more including this one. And uh, I think, really, I've been kind of introducing the main concepts all this time. But today I hope to start really making some progress uh, into the book itself, which if we, if we uh, actually look at where, how far we've gotten in the book, we've gotten this far, we've got this far to go. So this really is a book study with an extended expansion of the introductory concepts in the beginning. And uh, just as a, a, a cheat code for anyone who would want to do teaching, which we would welcome that, um, I don't think it's ideal for my voice to be the only voice that's, that's being heard all Sunday long. Um, so it'd be good to have uh, a greater rotation of teachers. And we do have two more teachers lined up for the next two, but a, a very easy way to, to teach a Sunday school class is to do a book study. Uh, and most devotional books that are printed today have 12 or 13 chapters. They're meant to be a Sunday school quarter. If I teach again in the fall, which I might, that's probably what I'm going to do again. Um, so in some ways, you let another man do the work for you, and then you, you summarize it. Um, so uh, obviously, that's not what preaching is, but uh, teaching sometimes, uh, that, that's what you're doing. So, and that's what we'll be doing from here on. I've been, for the first five classes, I've been more or less giving my own ideas, but I want to work through a lot of uh, what Daryl has um, uh, one thing I'm thinking about, and, and again, this is what I contrasted teaching and preaching. One of the beauties of teaching as opposed to preaching is preaching is very uh, clear-cut. There's an introduction, there's a conclusion, but teaching is totally open-ended. <laughs> um, man, if you preach a two-part series, people will get frustrated with you. They'll say, well, what if someone missed part two? Uh, so you have to get it all in one sermon. You have to preach the whole Bible in one sermon. Uh, but... Uh, Obviously, I don't mean that, but and certainly I don't believe that. But I think preaching builds on on itself. But teaching is totally open ended. Anyways, um, one of the things I'm thinking of doing, and, and maybe as a separate study, but certainly as a possible final class, is uh, the the Christian home as a place where where piety is formed. And piety is just another word for godliness. So as much as we're stressing the importance of the local church, uh, let us realize that the church itself depends on the home. And if the homes are weak, then the church will be weak, period. Uh, and, and so I kind of view it as that's kind of the hierarchy. You have the home, you have the church, you have the society. And if, if, if any link in that fails, uh, the greater links uh, will, just, will just drift into the ocean. So uh, go- godliness, Christian character is formed in the home. And hopefully that is a Christian character that you are bringing to church. I, I often will say the strength of the church, or the church is only as strong as the people in the pews. And so you can't assume that the church is strong, or that the pastor will bring adequate strength to the church if you are not contributing yourself. That may be a direction we go at the end. I'm not exactly sure, but, but I do want to keep making some progress through Daryl's book. Uh, the, the, the overarching question that I am asking is not necessarily what, what Daryl Hart is asking in his book, but I still find his book as immensely helpful in answering the question, and that is, what is Presbyterianism? What does it mean to be Presbyterian? 
And again, as a reminder, um, Presbyterianism is a historical phenomenon. It is something that came to be in the wake of the Reformation. It did not exist in biblical times. Now, you say, yes, it did, and I would agree with you in principle that there were Presbyterian churches because they were just churches, but... Uh, and those churches uh, were Presbyterian, we would argue. Um, but, but the point is, the church as it stands today, when we say Presbyterian, that is not just something that you can describe from the Bible, but that is something that is the result of historical circumstances. And the ethos of Presbyterianism today is certainly the result, we're going to talk about this today, certainly the result of historical factors. The, the thesis of the book, Recovering Mother Kirk, the idea is something has been lost. And why has it been lost? That's a historical question. Why does Presbyterianism today look different than it did in its origins? In other words, as I, we've been asking, what would Calvin, if he were alive today, look for in a church, in a Presbyterian church? So, uh, Again, a question of history. Uh, to zoom out a little bit, this is what we, what we were looking at last time, and we ran out of time, so I didn't quite finish the lesson. I asked the question very broadly. I was looking at uh, preaching, the, the form-freedom dichotomy. Then I asked very simply, and I was, this, this fit in with the idea of freedom, that we are open to the influence of the Spirit and the inspiration of the moment, and also the contribution of the people with the faith that they bring. And so the preacher, he brings his sermon that he's prepared. That's the form. But, but he isn't quite sure what's going to happen. He's open to the possibilities. But the, but the, the big question that I asked is, what are we looking for in worship? Uh, does anyone remember what the answer was? It's a three-letter word. God. We are hoping to meet with God. We're hoping to meet with God in the preaching. We're hoping to meet with God in the praying. We're hoping to meet with God in all of the forms of Presbyterian worship. The Directory of Public Worship, which I love, um, ta- it's, 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 it can be found uh, in the form of government, or excuse me, the Directory, uh, let's see, it's the, uh, not the form of government, That's a, there's the Directory of Worship, the form of government, what is the, the book of church order? That's what it's called. Uh, it, it says, because public worship is in its essence a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. Now, it, it goes on to say something I'm not necessarily interested in, but that's, that's the point I want to stress. Just the beginning of that sentence. Public worship is in its essence a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. That's why we come. Now, that's going to become important uh, on a point I later make. So he speaks of, or not he, the book speaks of God's contribution and our contribution. The triune God is not a passive spectator in public worship. This is God's contribution, but actively works in each element of the service. Neither are the people of God to be passive spectators in public worship, but by faith are to participate actively in each element of the service of worship. I could keep reading. When I did a class on worship, we went into that in detail. But the point is, and I've said this very often, uh, that I can tell when the people are prayed up, <laughs> when they are exercising faith in the worship service. I can also tell when they're not, when they're restless, when they're disinterested. And that drags me down. It drags everybody down. 
But when, when the, the people are full of faith and exercising that faith, they come expectant, they know they're meeting with God. It's such a boost, not only to me, but to your brother who's around you. And it's also, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this. I'm going, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and speak of this, actually. He talks about the vital element of the church. There's a mysterious element of the two or three who are gathered. What is the mystery? It's that Christ is present in the midst of the gathering. And that is something that the people experience. But it is also, he says, something that the unbeliever experiences when he comes in. He is conscious uh, of this vital element. He can't describe it. He doesn't understand it. But there is a sense of the sacred and of the holy. Uh, again, God meeting with the people. This is how he describes it. He says, the very presence, this is what he describes as the vital element of the church. The very presence of a body of people in itself is part of the preaching. This is his book on preaching. And he's talking about the contribution of the people to the preaching. The very presence of a body of people in itself is a part of the preaching. And these influences begin to to act immediately upon anyone who comes into a service. These influences, I I suggest, are very often more potent in a spiritual sense than pure intellectual argumentation. Again, just the form of the sermon. Not only that, when a man comes into a church to a body of people, he begins to get some idea of the fact that they are the people of God. And that they are the modern representatives of something that has been known in every age and every generation through the centuries. This makes an impact on him in and of itself. He's not simply considering a new theory or a new, a new teaching or a new idea. Here he is visiting or entering into something that has this long history and tradition. But let me put it in this form. The man who thinks that all this can be done by reading or just by looking at a television set or to use the language of today by a live stream is missing the mysterious element in the life of the church. What is this? It is where our Lord was suggesting, I think, when he said or what our Lord was suggesting, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst. It is not a mere gathering of people. Christ is present. This is the great mystery of the church. There is something in the very atmosphere of Christian people meeting together to worship God and listen to the preaching of the gospel. Well, there's a lot more I could read. This book is tremendous. I've I've given it to the elders. Preaching and Preachers is as much a book on the church as it is on preaching. And uh, even the history of the church, it, it's just wonderful. Anyone who was, it, wanted to read it would be greatly benefit from it. It's not just a book for preachers. And so the mysterious element is the fact that God is in it. Now, another thing we have to emphasize, and I've said this already, borrowing again from Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preaching and Preachers, is what he calls the romance of preaching, and that is the fact that God is sovereign. Sometimes he blesses, sometimes he withholds his blessing. We could say that's the romance of the Christian life as well. We never know what God is going to do. But again, that's to underscore the importance of freedom. Sometimes he will come with tremendous power. Uh, other times he, he, he withholds his presence. And we have to make adjustments for that as well. Uh, so that's the goal. That's why we come to church. The problem with the low church, if the goal of worship is to meet with the triune God, 
and to be sanctified by His presence, to use the language of Exodus. The problem with the low church is that it ignores this element almost entirely. It is treated um, as a meeting purely on the human plane. The problem with the high church is not that it goes too far in the direction of the divine. The problem is actually that it also operates on the level of the human and it tries to manufacture the awe-inspiring presence of God by the bells and the whistles. That's, that's the problem. The balance and the purity of Presbyterian worship is that it looks for God where? where he chooses to be found. And where did he promise to be found? In the means of grace, we would call them. In his appointed means of grace, in the simplicity and the spirituality of those means. And so we don't need to adorn them, we just need to simply present them as he has instituted them. If you remember um, the directory of worship in describing preaching, I believe uh, told the, the preacher to shun the art and the eloquence of, of, of uh, the modern oratory, but to, to preach plainly to the people. Uh, again, the simplicity of the means of grace. We're not trying to make, uh, to bring our own wisdom to bear upon the situation. All right. Now I want to, to move in a new direction. And this is where we, we really begin to look uh, and to make progress uh, in Daryl's book, Recovering Mother Kirk, and this is, again, a historical argument, but I think it's a beneficial one if we are to understand the state of the Presbyterian Church today and perhaps what it is that we are hoping uh, to regain. He talks about the forming of a low church tradition. The question is, how did Presbyterianism, once so high church in its sensibilities, become so low church? And the answer, uh, the, the big answer is, the Second Great Awakening, uh, but we, we, we don't need to uh, look at that event too carefully. That would be a whole study in itself. Uh, if you ever want to read a great work on the Second Great Awakening, Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism is a great work, and he makes the point the Second Great Awakening gets a lot of hatred <laughs> from, uh, from Presbyterians, uh, old-school Presbyterians, but he points out that there were a lot of really good men uh, in the Second Great Awakening. But there were a lot of really bad men, too. So he contrasts true revival with revivalism, which was just a man-made phenomenon. And Daryl pinpoints three factors that have led to a low church tradition being formed in the 20th century, and now into the 21st century. Now, Daryl is not a fan of the Puritans. I know this because I know him personally. If you read his works, you'll see this. Uh, but I think as a historian, uh, his point is fair. Uh, it, he says the first is the influence of the Puritans. Now that's a little bit painful. And he even, um, he even pinpoints the directory of worship that I read from last time. And he says that that, that book... Now, this is not a history I know very well. Uh, the history of the Puritans and of the English church. But And anyone who knows this better can help me out. But... Uh, but they were reacting to the act of uniformity, or did that come later? A at any rate, can you help me, Glenn? Do you know? Yeah, the Puritans were around before and after the act of uniformity. I'm asking if the confession was written before or after it. Well, the confession was, was definitely before. Before, okay. Well, 
nevertheless, they were what later became the act of uniformity. They were already against it in spirit, and that spirit is found in the uh, in the Westminster Directory of Worship. They they refuse to have set a set liturgy uh, in their in their um, directory of worship. Now, it's very clear if you read it <laughs> that it is much more formal than uh, what you would find today in the PCA, for example, which has no directory of worship. But, but one of the things is uh, th- th- they allowed, uh, they wanted as a matter of principle, as a matter of conscience, which later became the great battle over the act of uniformity and led to their expulsion. Uh, but again, you already see the principles being articulated in the directory of worship. And this may or may not be uh, a bad thing given the, our form freedom um, dichotomy. They wanted to maintain an element of freedom in worship. And so they did not lay down set liturgies. It can be argued historically that that is actually what Calvin wanted. Calvin wanted uniformity in worship. So this is just a historical question. Good or bad, it, it's hard to say. But these things contributed ultimately uh, together to where we, we find ourselves today, where freedom has been overemphasized. Dave, what were you going to say? Yeah, what well, is the act of uniformity where um, the uh, Church of England kicked out the, the, uh, well, the Puritans and said, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the act of uniformity? Yeah. Because they, they adopted the, um, what's the Anglican... Uh, Oh, So that was one of the battles that was being fought, um, is, is uh, how much freedom did you want in worship? Now, again, like I say, if you read the directory of worship that the Puritans wrote, the Westminster directory, you will see, you would say, well, there's not very much freedom here. Actually, it's very constricting. But nevertheless, that was the tra- trajectory things were going. That's, that's just one point. Okay, let's not lay too much blame at their feet. I, I think... I, I, I love that director of worship, so let's go along with them. But then added to that, this is a historical trajectory that Daryl was explaining. Added to that later, and this comes in more in the 19th and 20th century, the 1800s and the 1900s, number two, the assumptions of evangelical piety. And I spoke of this last time. Uh, the, the greatest emphasis of evangelical piety is... What? Can anyone tell me? I actually said this last time, but I'm wondering if anyone remembers or can think of it now. How do you know if a man is, a, is serious? Well, that's a, too good of an answer to be the one. Uh, it's sincerity. It's sincerity. They also say authenticity. Right. Same, same thing. Authenticity, sincerity. Now, that idea can easily mitigate against the higher church assumptions against liturgy because essential to their view of sincerity, and certainly you see this in the modern church, is 
an inability and an unwillingness to express devotion in the words of another. Uh, Daryl calls that the logic of Presbyterian anti-formalism. And so you want to be as informal and as sincere and authentic as possible. And, and everything has to be supremely authentic in the moment. So it, it becomes very anti-credal. It becomes very anti-historical. Uh, and, and, and quite frankly, it becomes very modern. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. In fact, I'm sure it isn't. The third contributing factor is what is certainly true in American Protestantism, uh, very much a low church ma- mindset, and that is the anti-clerical impulse. That is a disdain for liturgy. Remember, high, uh, excuse me, uh, a disdain for um, the ordained ministry. That's what I meant to say. Uh, there is connected with a high view of the church is a high view of the ordained minister. Connected with a low view of the church is a low view of that, so that you, you have men who aren't trained, you have, um, you have uh, a lack of ordination. You even have not only lay preachers, but let's go even further and say you have uh, lady preachers. Uh, I remember being in the charismatic church and seeing that. I said, what's going on here? Uh, and here I thought these people were so serious about the Christian life, and they didn't care what the Bible had to say. But again, it was their experience of God that was put at a premium, uh, even at the expense of the Bible. So you see these things and you realize these people aren't serious. But all of those represent an anti-clerical impulse, whether lay preaching, whether lady preaching or um, and lady preaching is very common in the evangelical church. You have Joyce Meyer on TV. Uh, Lots of people like that. Uh, uh, Our former president. (laughs) Uh, met uh, Donald Trump met with uh, one of the, the prominent lady preachers. I don't remember who she was, uh, but that was really an embarrassment when she was seen as uh, that blonde-haired lady. What was her name? No, it wasn't Beth Moore. Um, Paula yeah, Paula White, who is not a Christian, let me be clear. I don't have any trouble saying that. <laughs> as heretical as they come, but the mere fact that she's a lady preacher, I mean, that should be a sign. But anyways... All of that, that's so much part of the fabric of evangelicalism. And it's all an expression of what Daryl calls an anti-clerical impulse. But connected to an anti-clerical impulse is a disdain for liturgy. For who made the liturgy? Whose idea was the liturgy in Geneva? It was Calvin. Well, who cares what Calvin said? That was 400 years ago. You see, if you have a low view of the ministry, then you're going to have a low view of their work. Uh, yeah. Sure. When we're talking about the low church, I, and you know, you mentioned the Second Great Awakening, do we see more low church in America? Is it something that came out of America, or do you also see it in Europe? I mean, obviously, in modern times, you can see it in Europe just by, you know, missionaries and people, but. Historically, was, did the low church come out of America, or was it already? In the- I think the answer is yes. Um, and uh, Mark Knoll wrote a book, America's God. It's a huge book. Uh, so I, I, you know, if, if but if that was a book you were really in, or a subject you were interested in pursuing, uh, that would be the book to read. But the answer is yes, because one of the things that is uh, part of the ethos of evangelicalism is. The rugged individualism. And that's very much an American ideal. 
Uh, and I don't even necessarily mind that. I mean, I, I very much embrace that myself. Uh, but uh, it, it can have fatal consequences to the church when she's seen as an organization that not only spans through the modern world, but also historically through time. Dave? That's definitely part of it as well, the Anabaptists. So you do see it in Europe as well. The answer is I, I don't know about Europe very much, but certainly in America it, it is the case. Uh, that it, it, it has it, it fits very well with American sensibilities. I often tell this story, and I'm not picking on the country Baptist preacher. I mean, I grew up in North Carolina. There was a lot of those, a lot of those, those churches I went to as my, my, in my younger days as a Christian. Um, but I remember sitting at the table of a country Baptist preacher and he said, I just don't like Calvinism. It's not American. Uh, and, you know, I thought, I mean, at least he's honest. Because that's why most people in America don't like Calvinism. It's just not American. You don't get to decide as the individual. God gets to decide. So, all right. What is it that determines the true church? How do you know if you're in a true church? Faithful preaching. Yeah, preaching, word, and, and sacrament. That's the test of a true church, going back to the Reformation and even before. But that was the big emphasis of the Reformation, word and sacrament. Now, that is very much a Protestant ideal. Maybe in, in saying that, we realize that the high church uh, ideal is a little bit better. I mean, relative to the low church. Uh, maybe biblically approved forms and the presence of biblically approved forms is the key to the church being the church. And so perhaps we ought to move up the high church ladder a ways, moving away from uh, the low church sensibility. So influence of the Puritans, assumptions of evangelical piety and anti-clerical impulse. That leads Daryl to ask this question. Whether we ought to view the church as mother or as personal trainer. Now, that's classic Daryl Hart. Uh, he, he's very provocative. So you have one that's obviously great and the other that's being ridiculed. So he's never fair to his opponents, but uh, it makes it very enjoyable to read, uh, much like the reformers. Uh, because who would say, well, the church is my personal trainer? Uh, but unfortunately, that, that is a very much a low church sensibility. Let me read some quotes from his. Uh, he says, For many American Protestants, too often the church is not only an option for expressing uh, uh, I think I'm reading this quote. I, I typed this quote down wrong, so I'm going to have to pull the book out. I, I definitely typed that down wrong. Oh, I added the word not when it didn't occur. The church is only, for too many uh, American Protestants, too often the church is only an option for expression of heartfelt devotion. A choice that is equivalent of personal forms of devotion or parachurch initiatives. Uh, I don't have a pencil. I want to cross that out, but that's all right. Um, so, the, the, you could take it or leave it. Now, again, this is what you saw in COVID. Uh, of course, we're still dealing with it, aren't we? But the point was... A lot of people felt that they could do just fine as Christians without the church. Sure, the church might help, but it's not necessary. That's the church's personal trainer. Maybe I'm a little out of shape, but my Christianity's doing just fine. 
And so the church's personal trainer looks like this, to quote Daryl again. The church's task is simply to supply pep talks, or I've been saying TED talks, and programs for personal improvement. The real work of the church then is what God's people do throughout the work week, with Sunday providing a form of continuing education. I like that too, continuing education. Now, unquestionably, that's the prevailing mindset of the evangelical church, even the reformed evangelical church. I remember uh, hearing uh, a student say very passionately that my job as a minister will be simply to equip the people to do the work of the ministry. What's the word for that? It's a buzzword. It's a phrase, actually. Every member ministry. That's a big buzzword in evangelicalism. It all depends on the comma in Ephesians 4.12. Uh, and, and, and that's that which they took out. But you still find in the King James that God, uh, Jesus supplied the ministers for, uh, I'm going to have to read it. Uh, I'm going to have to read it just to make the case uh, very quickly. Ephesians, all the newer, including New King James, they all took the comma out. And there's a wonderful article by T. David Gordon, uh, which argues against this comma, which was taken out. I'm sorry that I can't remember. Uh, He gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors in teaching for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for for the edifying of the body. It's three prepositional phrases. You would never have three prepositional phrases, or I, I, I won't say never, but ordinarily you would treat them as three separate precept, pre, pre, um, prepositional phrases. The ministers were given one for the equipping of the saints, two for the work of ministry, and three for the edifying of the body of Christ. You would need the commas to, to indicate these are separate prepositional phrases, each beginning with the word for, to describe the work of the ministers. And that's what you find in the King James. What the modern translators do is they take the comma out. And so the ministers are doing the equipping of the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. He gave pastors for the equipping of the saints, the saints doing the work of the ministry. You see what happens when you take that comma out. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you so you can do the work of the ministry. That is a very low church view uh, of, of, uh, of ministry. It is a strained translation, and uh, it's, it's a great argument for just going back to the King James, I'm afraid, because even the new King James takes the comma out. So what, one of the first things I look for is the comma. It isn't there. Uh, but again, if you look at the Greek, very naturally, that's how you would translate it. But so often theology, I mean, everybody, who trans, even Luther did this. Everyone who translates the Bible is, is expressing their own theology. You have, to be, you have to be conscious of that when you're reading. And you have to be even critical. Even my beloved King James. You have to be critical of the English. Because that is not the inspired word of God. The inspired word of God is found in the Greek. It is a faithful representation. But, but the, the inerrant word of God is found only in the manuscripts we possess. So, every member ministry. The saints are doing the ministry. Do you see how that transforms your view of what you do when you come to church? You're coming to church to get a workout so that you can go out and flex your muscles. <laughs> Instead of, it's the same view of prayer. I remember reading this a long time ago. Is prayer preparing you for the work of the Christian life or is prayer the work of the Christian life? Do you understand the difference in those two questions? What is the high point? And what will we be doing in heaven? We'll be forever praising God uh, in his presence. So worship is, is not a training session. 
Worship is the thing. It's the greatest opportunity for you to exercise your Christianity. So we reject, or I reject, every member ministry model. A high view of the church, on the other hand, Daryl says, her worship, ministry, and creed requires a piety that recognizes the believer's dependence on the means of grace that God has ordained to bless his children. In other words, Presbyterians need to recover the notion of the church's mother. Now, I say that and and I can, without even looking at your faces, I don't see it on your faces, which is good, but just being among American Protestants, the church's mother, I I can anticipate the... The, the, the sense of uh, disdain in, in your heart. I hope not, but, but that's become my expectation. If, if God is our father, the church is our mother. Who said that? An evil pope of Rome? Or maybe a beloved church father? Who said that? No. It was Augustine. And who latched on to that in the Reformation especially? It was Calvin. It was Calvin. The church is our mother. Our confession... Now, Calvin says there's no possibility of salvation outside the church. Our confession adds a word. But it, it, it takes that phrase. And the confession is just... Cal- the more you read Calvin, if you're familiar with the confession, you'll say, this is Calvin, this is Calvin. It's all Calvin. But it added a word. It said ordinarily. Out of which ordinarily there's no possibility of salvation. But if you read the New Testament... He's, the, the epistles are always, 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 always addressing churches. So I guess there's, there's one exception, which is um, Philemon. Anyways, I suppose there's an exception to every rule. But, but at any rate, it, 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 the work of the New Testament was that of addressing and building the churches. They were not addressing individual Christians. The church is the mother. That is the implicit assumption of the New Testament. And it needs to be the explicit belief of Protestants today. Certainly, I would say, that has become the arena in which we are battling today. The thing we're contending for is not whether you can preach the gospel. It's whether you can gather for worship. And really, if you look at the persecuted church, that's always the thing she was fighting for. Can we gather in the name of Jesus? Well, are you really willing to risk your life for that? It depends what you believe about the church. If it's just your personal trainer, you might do just as well sitting on the couch watching the live stream. Or maybe if you believe this, this is my life, this is my, my meat and my drink, then you would say, it's, it's something that's even worth dying for. The church is my mother. If God is my father, the church is my mother. To go on with Daryl. But to recognize the church's mother, Presbyterians also need to remember, listen to this, their pilgrim status. I'll stop there. I'll finish the quote in a second. What is the pilgrim status? Well, involved in this is, first of all, a low estimation of myself. In myself, I am nothing. I am sinful. I could never live the Christian life on my own. If I try, To try on my own is to fail, period. Number two, the pilgrim mentality is to realize realistically the dangers of this world. How can I pass through this world as a solitary figure and not be utterly destroyed in my spirituality? And number three, as a pilgrim, we must have a high view of the church and her ministry, a high view of the Lord's Day, a high view of the Lord's Supper and all the means of grace. What does, if you think of the pilgrim status, what does the Lord's Supper represent to us? Think of the Israelites as pilgrims. It's our manna. 
in the wilderness that God is providing to us to nourish us spiritually. And we cannot live without that spiritual sustenance. We will die in the wilderness. So recognizing your pilgrim, I guess I would add as a fourth thing, is to realize you're in the wilderness. You're not in the promised land yet. And you're in danger of dying. To go on with the quote, again, one estimate, one's estimate of the church is tied to one's assessment of the Christian life. In this case, it looks as if low church Presbyterians have adopted the attitude of the Israelites when they complained about their diet in the wilderness. And so God said, here is your food. And they said, we're not interested. That's exactly the attitude of Christians today when God says, here is your food. And they say, we're not interested. They're grumbling in the wilderness when God would feed them and strengthen them. So that, that ends one segment. I want, to, I want to move on to the next subject. But I'll stop there if there's any thoughts or questions. I find it interesting the language you use when you're talking about the mother church because I feel like when we hear so many, when we hear of evangelicals converting to Catholicism, I feel like that's what they're looking for. Yeah, I know. It sounds very Catholic. I mean, I know it does. It does. It does. And what we need to get comfortable with as Protestants. It, is that we have a high church appeal. <laughs> that, that people who are longing for something, the, the grandness of the historic church, there are alternatives to Protestants, uh, to, to Roman Catholics, I mean. Uh, so the, the language of Roman Catholicism was the thought world of the reformers. They did not reject all of it. They still had a very, very high view of the church. Uh, it was a reformation. It was not a revolution. And so some of those categories, even though they unsettle us, <laughs> it, it, they are actually positive things. And we need to realize that we have we, we can offer the same things. Uh, so the, re, the reason someone uh, let me just say one more thing. The reason someone is, is at fault for, for coming home, they call it, to the Roman Catholic Church is not because they view church as mother. It's because it isn't a church. I think that's an important thing to recognize. It's not the mother, it's the church part. Go ahead, Gaylene. It seems like it's always been the bride of Christ. I'm, the mother mm. thing is very foreign to me. Yeah, the yeah. Bride, bride is like well, bride is a great, a great illustration too, I would agree. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, what we're doing now is we're mixing metaphors, but the Bible does do that. It does use various metaphors, so... Uh, the church's relationship to Christ. Right. We're not, we're not saying the church is Christ's mother. <laughs> we're saying the church is our mother. So, But yeah, you start mixing the metaphors and it starts getting confusing. But again, scripture does that. So, And admittedly, the scripture never says the church is our mother. Uh, but uh, this, this is a way of capturing an importance of the church. If you don't like that language, uh, at, at least... I hope you're comfortable with the idea that we as pilgrims need a place of nourishment and strengthening. And again, we'll die in the wilderness without it. That's certainly my conviction. Uh, I, I, I mean, we, we, we closed the church for six weeks for COVID and um, we still had live streams, but that wasn't, we were not holding church services. I felt that I was spiritually dying. And, and I, I was saying, I cannot keep doing this. I am dying. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that either. That is exactly how I felt. Yeah, Dave. Oh, wait. When you say the metaphor of a body, and think of 
body can't live separated from itself. It's, it has to be connected. And we also see the vine, you know, illustration as well. So I understand what you're saying. I'm not sure how that how that relates to what we're saying. Well, what she's talking um, the mother and the, the bride. The importance of the church, how vital it is for us not to be going solo. Right. Apart from the church, um, there's many. Metaphors. Many metaphors that illustrate that. We have to be connected. Yeah. yeah. All right, I'm going to... Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> we're out of time. That's fine. I mean, I really do actually enjoy the, the way that we're able to kind of take these ideas and explore them together. I, I think we probably should stop. I was eager to talk about the next subject, which is church growth. Um, how, how should we look for church growth? This is a huge question that I have. But I, I think we're at a good stopping point. Believe it or not, what we just finished was, was supposed to be the second part of last week's lesson. But this is just how it goes. Um, and uh, I, th- I think this has been good, though. And I'm glad we have time to, to hash this out together. I'd rather do that than rush through each lesson. So uh, any, any, any other thoughts since we have a minute or so? I don't want to get into the next subject. All right, I think we're good. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the ability to consider these things together, and we ask you that you might continue to, to help us to evaluate our own convictions and beliefs and, and practices as well. And, and, and we ask you uh, at the same time now as we go into worship and as we express our pilgrim status through our observance of, wor- of the Lord's Day, and Lord's Day worship, that we would find as, as weary pilgrims our manna from heaven and, and also the word of God, which strengthens us just as it strengthened Jesus in his wilderness experience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.